Hello, and thank you for joining our 1Q22 Minutes for Markets call. On a day when the 10-year Treasury hit its highest level since April of 2019, we're fortunate to have Alex Rover, who heads our U.S. rate strategy team, uh, here with us. My name is Peter DeGroot, and I'm joined by my colleague on the Muni strategy team, Ye Tien and Sabrina Spatz. So, Alex, last week, uh, you were very busy, I understand. Um, yeah shifting your uh, rate uh, policy higher, as uh, one might uh, one might expect. I imagine that the catalyst for the reassessment had something to do with, you know, the Fed's uh, apparent new focus on inflation and, and the relative stickiness of inflation. Could you sort of take us through your forecast and some of the reasoning? Sure. Happy, happy to do that, Peter. And thanks, everybody, for joining us today. Yeah, I mean, I think as, as Peter points out, we, we did make um, some adjustments to our interest rate forecast last week. I think for anybody who's been involved in trying to forecast rates the past few months, it's it's definitely been you know a challenging uh, or, or a, even today di- dynamic <laughs> environment. Right. So I mean, today I was going to come in. I figured I was going to you know, mm-hmm. begin begin our conversation talking about you know keeping keeping the end in mind. And what, what what got me thinking about that was I feel like I've spent most of the past two weeks talking about inverted yield curves from twos mm-hmm. to tens. And then I look at the yield curve today, and we're not inverted anymore. So it's like, yeah, no more recession risk. Um, but if only, if only it were that simple. So we've obviously got higher rates. We've also got a lot more volatility in the curve. And you know, I think once we got past uh, quarter end, you know, some of the lack of market depth that we've had that I think has sort of fed that volatility eased a little bit because dealer balance sheets are able to sort of move around a little bit better now than they were. Um, and some of the dynamics that we've, you know, where we look at sort of, you know, how much, you know, how, with the size of offers and trades in the market uh, flow, they're moving back towards a, a more normal position relative to where they were a couple weeks ago. But I think the, the bigger the bigger questions really are around the shape of the yield curve. And you really have sort of the front end of the yield curve. So let's call it overnight out to threes. And then you got sort of the, the intermediate and longer part of the curve. So, you know, we're obviously very steep in the front end of the curve right now, which I think reflects um, a Fed that's going to be, I think, much more aggressive than than you know, I think a few months ago, us or the street were we're assuming in terms of in terms of the hiking pattern. So it's a new call for. for so uh, we're hiking. you know our call, uh, Mike Feroli, our chief economist, yeah. is now looking for uh, 50 basis points in May, 50 basis points in June, and then a, a run rate of 25 through the end of the year, and then mm. you know into into the first first part of next year. So getting us to what uh, two and seven eighths, I think he said. Two two year. and seven yeah. eighths is sort of you know where where eventually we're thinking we're going, and that's. Um, People have, I think economists will debate sort of what the neutral neutral rate is. But I think, you know, the, you, you don't get a lot of pushback from folks when you say three is probably on the edge of restrictive, right? And then yeah, 250 yeah. may not be, you know, you know, maybe short of neutral. So it's in that range. I think Mike's just trying to, to reflect, you know, his model. And also, I think, an assumption that when you get to that level, you're, you're starting to move into restrictive territory. And, and that's what he thinks. The Fed will be looking at in terms of in terms of longer term policy policy setting rates. So we think about sort of what's you know what's changed in terms of you know view view of the market. And I think the the biggest single thing really thinking about sort of how the views of inflation have changed. And we you know we continue to sort of see uh, you know data come come forth. You know tight labor markets. You know they have supply chain issues. It's all. I mean we all read them in the paper every day. We see them. We see them at the grocery store. We see them at the gas pump. If you mm-hmm. you know you and, know and Brainerd today. Right. And, and, and Brainerd and Fred's, today. Uh, 
Fed speakers seem to be pounding us, right, with that message. Yeah, and it's hard. It's hard to know. I mean, different different speakers when they when they talk, they they they're sharing their own views, their own their own analysis, and you know what we're really looking for you know, this week is what we're going to learn from the minutes for the last meeting. Mm-hmm. And that won't have attribution to particular speakers, but, we, you know, we will, I think, in that discussion that's reflected in the minutes, you know, see a, a pretty interesting array, I, I think, of, of views across across there. And I suspect there, there you know, will be, you know, you know, two, three or more members that, that you know, come across as being you know, more aggressive on the inflation front. And, and I think that those those people have probably been voicing themselves in the past week or so, yeah. and, and you could probably pick them out, right? Yeah, yeah. Comment, if you, right? If you, if you could, yeah, you, I mean, you just go look at any of the yeah. Fed, Fed yeah. speak tables that are out there and yeah. and pick it out, uh, and you know, try try to handicap it yourself. And mm. um, in any case, uh, so very important. So 50, out, right? 50 and fifty, I think yeah. is you know, so. That's 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 a surprise to the market. Um, and I think you know, there's this there's another shop on the street that's saying you know four fifties this year. The path could be steeper. The other side of that coin is okay. So fifties are pretty big moves by by any sort of historical standard. You you, you put a hundred basis points of tightening in over a eight, eight ten week period. Inflation adjusts with the, with the, with the lag. You know, employment adjusts with the lag. So um, it's about eight, about twelve months. Yeah. And so yeah. right. So it's like you know how do you how do they know that they're not going too fast? So that brings in the question of. Okay, at some point, you know what what makes them want to want to adjust, want to slow down, and that's you know that's not entirely clear from what they've communicated. They just communicated to us they want to go faster. Yeah. They haven't said anything about slowing down. So in, in any case, you know we we you know we're looking for uh, a tightening campaign, faster at first to try to deal with the existing inflation now that is coming down the path, and then rising at a slower pace as we get through the end of the year, and then as we get into 2023, you know, trying probably hitting some sort of point where um, they're away from doing every meeting or every other meeting. They're just kind of doing it, doing it conditionally. As, as needed. As so the other thing that's going to happen, and and this, you know, we've spent a lot of time talking about this, and this is the inside baseball, I think, for the rates world is, you know, what's going to happen with the balance sheet. So the Fed balance sheet is, is just shy of $9 trillion in assets currently. One of the things, probably the main thing, I think a lot of the rates world's looking at, at trying to find out from these minutes, what are the plans for contracting the balance sheet? Um, you know, we're anticipating that uh, they're probably going to communicate something on the order of about $60 billion a month, once, once uh, $60 billion a month of treasury contraction and $30 billion a month of, of mortgage-backed securities contraction. Um, and that would probably ramp up over over a, a three month uh, three month period. Um, it's about twice the pace. It's about twice yeah. the pace of what what they did when they when they last tried to try to shrink the balance sheet. Which, well, much longer, right? It's a much bigger it's a much bigger yeah. balance sheet. It gets it gets a little interesting. Though. I mean, so so what does that actually mean? So you know, they're they're going to allow securities in the treasury market. They're going to allow securities that they own. To mature, um, and and those those securities will be refinanced according to the Treasury's auction schedule. So you know, old you know whatever's maturing, whether it's an old thirty or an old T bill, allowed to run off, and then just gets refinanced as, as Treasury does its refinancing. So what's the goal of making that um, of allowing that to occur more quickly? So to, so yeah. so the you know they the Fed engaged in the asset purchases to create extra accommodation in 2020 when everything else was was going crazy they couldn't cut rates fast enough they couldn't cut rates into negative territory mm-hmm. so the asset purchases were a way that they could they could increase accommodation 
And so what that does is it increases their balance sheet, but at the same time, you know, they're taking, they're buying more assets, the Fed is, but they're also creating more liabilities. And the liabilities they're taking uh, are, are liabilities of commercial banks. So those are the reserves. So one of the things that's going to happen in the commercial banking system as these assets are contracting is the reserves, uh, the liability side of the balance sheet has to contract as well. Now, it's an interesting thing about the, the liability side of the balance sheet. The reserves, you know, make up about 3.8 trillion of, of, of the, uh, of the liabilities. And the other two categories of the liabilities are something called the uh, Treasury General Account, which I'll talk about in a second, and then the overnight RRP program that, that some of the callers are pr probably pretty aware of. Um, so on the, on the case of the TGA account, uh, that's the Treasury's checking account at, 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 at the Federal Reserve. They um, have targeted, you know, uh, for, for their own operating purposes, they have about $700 billion in there. And they've been in the process of ramping that up. So that will go to $700 billion this year. So that will grow from 575. The overnight RP program was a program that was, that was created in 2020 as the crisis was ongoing because the Fed was growing its balance sheet too quickly for the banks to be able to absorb it, the commercial banks themselves. They enlisted, they enlisted the money market funds who were struggling with, with low to negative interest rates at the time. So they created something called the overnight RFP program, which, which basically allows the, those, those money funds to invest at a rate, you know, you know, currently 30 basis points, right at the bottom, sort of the bottom end of the, of the target, the target towards the bottom end of the target range, what the Fed's trying to do. One of the things we think that's going to happen as, as the balance sheet is shrinking and as rates are rising is the money funds are probably not going to lose, lose their interest in the RFP as quickly as, as, as what the banks are. The banks, we're, we're thinking we're probably going to lose reserves about twice as fast as what we're going to lose out of the, the RRP program, uh, which means sort of less reserves in the system. If you think of the reserves were sort of the cash injection that's coming into the system, that's going to come down faster. We think a lot of this is really sort of priced into the market right now. It's hard to say how many hikes the, the balance sheet adjustments worth, um, but I, I, I feel like it's it's an area that we're going to be talking about for for a long time, and it's another way, in addition to the the hikings we're, hikes we've been talking about, that the Fed's going to remove accommodation from the system, you know, more more quickly. Impact on liquidity, like we're already concerned with growth in Treasury bond market and sort of same number of players uh, creating liquidity in that market and how that's impacted. Yeah, we really haven't grown the, we really haven't grown the, the primary dealer communities. Treasuries mm -hmm. are all auctioned through a primary dealer, uh, primary dealer group. That group's been basically the same for, for, for years now. Mm -hmm. And we've got all this treasury supply, right? To, to intermediate. You've got a lot more, yeah, a lot more treasury supply coming down, down, down the pike. You've got the re recycling of this treasury, you know, not, not just, you know, not just what's coming off the Fed's balance sheet, but also, you know, new fiscal spending that, that's been appropriated. So, you know, um, the Treasury's been, you know, been looking at that and, um, you know, working, working to try to find the most, you know, e economic solution for issuing that. But so there's more Treasury supply in the market. There are larger options, options in the marketplace. You sort of have the same number of dealers in, in the marketplace. And really, it's, it's like a lot of, lot of businesses. There's sort of a heavy half. So four or five dealers really account for half. Of, of, of the flows that happen in the treasury market and the other 20-ish are, are, you know, sort of, sort of in the, uh, you know, make up, make up the balance. 
but among those larger larger banks, you know, several of them have issues with some of the the Basel bank regulations. So, like the the, uh, the leverage ratio, the subsidiary yes. leverage ratio, uh, the GSIP surcharges. These things can interfere with them either on an ongoing basis or um, on, a, on a on a quarterly or annual basis. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of how much credit, how much liquidity they can provide to the marketplace. So how um, concerned are you then, right? With the, with the role of the treasuries? And, and well, and so it, it's really mattered. It's, it's matters now because yeah. it has mattered in recent weeks because of the the slope of the yield curve. I mean, yeah. you've got you you know, we see rates rising quickly. Uh, you know, no one wants to be you know holding holding bonds that that might move faster than they're hedged for uh, going forward. So that's been sort of a disincentive to to. Um, you know, maybe interme intermediate as much in the markets as he yeah. might might otherwise. Um, so this quarter end stress, extra, you know, you, you feel like we'll be. Uh, I, I feel like we're, we're probably now we're past quarter end. I think you know we're starting to see liquidity sort of get back, you know, move back slowly towards a more a more normal sort of level. Longer term, there's some things I think for financial stability purposes where. It would make sense for the for the you know official sector to go back and review you know the combination of regulations that, that are sitting on top of the on, on top of the treasury dealers, maybe you know adjust the SLR, maybe make you know maybe if they're going to make an adjustment that reduces that, do something that increases like you know a different capital ratio just so you know things sort of remain in balance, yeah, but yeah, they're yeah, not they're not doing yeah. something you know they're not aggravating the liquidity situation as much as. You, you could probably find a better balance, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, thinking it's sort of a game time, um, like, you know, quarter end, like weighing the stress of the market sort of position. Oh, and, and one thing, uh, if you do have any questions for uh, Alex or anyone else as we sort of uh, go through our uh, our spiel, uh, please uh, hit the hand raise button. Thank you. So anyway, I, I, yeah, and we started off with the forecast. So I, before I even start talking about the forecast. Um, so, you know, just for what it's worth, you know, so where we are today with sort of, you know, where we sort of twos at, at 250 and overnight, or I'm sorry, at uh, uh, where are we, tens at 255. That's pretty close to where we we have, we have marked our mid-year uh, forecast levels. Uh, so twos at 255 is where we would see them. Uh, tens at 260 and then 30s at, at 265. So it's still a relatively flat curve, you know, sure. through, through the middle part of the year. As we get further into the year and the Fed, you know, hikes more and we get more sort of treasury supply coming back into the marketplace, you know, we're still seeing the curve stay flat to inverted. So we're seeing a fair value around 290 uh, at the end of the year, tens at 285 and then 30s at about 280. So not deeply inverted, but it's sort of, you know, leaning, leaning that way. It's like skiing in Illinois. It's a very <laughs> shallow slope, you know. And what's the, you know, again, you, you, you sort of alluded to it. What what are the implications for, you know, recession? Uh, obviously, it's not a large inversion. We're sort of like playing both, both sides of the fence there. Is that? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't. So we're not, you know, we're not thinking a recession is like imminent this year. And, and mm -hmm. you know, obviously, as much, as much press this has had in the markets, you could be forgiven for thinking that, that it, it is not. Um, it's it, when we look at sort of the Fed funds futures market, it sort of peaks out in, in late, you know, late 2023 and then sort of gradually drops off from there. So, it's, you know, it's not pricing in a big reception. But when you look at the longer tenors, the longer yields, they're looking over that longer span and they're thinking, you know, the further you get into this, the probability of recession increases. If you use um, Bloomberg has a, a recession probability indicator that probably a lot of folks on the phone have used, you know, 12 month probability is about 20% right now. 
which okay. is which is yeah. a year ago it was at 50 percent yeah really well. yeah so it hasn't hasn't moved that much the feds on forecast in flux right uh, and lots of moving parts not to mention geopolitical risk uh, it, it's fair to say that it, we're in the early innings of trying to figure that out. They are, and, and we're still we're still facing a lot of other, you know, and you talk about sort of the geopolitical risk, you talk about the, the supply chain issues. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of lot of things moving around still that, you know, we, we don't know what's going to happen next week, let alone you know, six months from now. So volatility, you addressed the volatility uh, as, as you were you know, discussing the, the potential uh, imbalances in the market, particularly around quarter end. We've got more treasury issuance. We've got treasury issuance that's running off of Fed balance sheets. Now we've got the same sort of a number of primary dealers in the market. Um, How does that evolve as we go? I mean, it sounds to me like that's putting more and more pressure. We get more and more days like today where uh, you get a relative centrist speaker uh, in, uh, you know, on the Fed uh, moving, uh, you know, moving along the data yields 15 basis points. Yeah, Peter. I mean, at this point, I think we've had all the speakers speak, so I don't know who's going to, who's going to surprise us anymore. Who's next? At least once. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, so and and we'll have. I think after the minutes, we'll. But it could be anyway, right? Seemingly. Uh, I I think I think now that they've sort of staked out their views. I think their follow-on speeches are probably variations on themes, and unless unless something else major major happens along the way, not yet, not would. Great. Um, anything else that sort of in terms of uh, on the horizon that we should uh, be looking out for? Um, I think these are the, these are the big things. I mean, you know, if, if I had to, you know, had to guess, you know, surprise, you know, potentially, you know, maybe they get more aggressive around uh, balance sheet reduction than, than what we're anticipating, mm-hmm. you know, so what that might mean is they might, they might be more aggressive in terms of trying to raise the caps on, on treasuries. The only thing with about raising the caps on treasuries is, um, the way the runoff works, there's, you know, and treasury maturities spike once a quarter and the refunding months because of the, the issuance pattern. Yeah. So really the caps as they are right now, um, only buying like on those, on those refunding months. So raising them doesn't actually get you a, a lot more in terms of, in terms of runoff. Uh, likewise, the caps on the mortgages are actually probably above what the, what the runoff would be on the mortgage portfolios, given where the, 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 the prepays are and the repays are uh, speeds are on those right now. So one of the things that they could talk about, maybe it won't be for this time, but maybe later in the year they'll talk about you know doing doing mortgage subs and sales into the marketplace. Um, that you know that could be something of interest to markets that are spread off of treasuries because you know the MBS if that's if those spreads are affected by that, then you might see some 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 impact into the into the credit markets and maybe even into Credit and you know high grade and immunities have sort of become more intertwined. Absolutely, uh, and particularly uh, inside of ten years, where uh, there there's a certain uh, ilk of our client base that looks at immunities alongside of securitized yeah. products uh, as far as their sort of target rate. Uh, yeah. Target. And, and I don't think it's a big disruption, but I think it's something to keep an eye out for. Right. Okay. Now let's see. Moving into uh, the muni bond space, so naturally with uh, the increase in the U.S. rates forecast, uh, we've also increased our forecast for uh, U.S. munis. And uh, when we do our rates forecast, we focus on AAA munis, uh, sort of a high grade uh, like uh, number. Our expectation is that uh, you see about uh, in uh, about a, a twenty and fifteen basis point, respectively, uh, increase in both 10 and 30 year high grade yield, yields between now and mid-year. 
And then you see about 15 basis points uh, from mid-year to the end of the year. So we're looking for, you know, 35 uh, to 40 basis points of increase on longer dated high grade yields in the muni space. Uh, no inversion, uh, which uh, has uh, only occurred to my knowledge uh, and uh, to our historical data uh, only once. And it's only it's happened in the two and three year portions of the curve, never uh, no longer portions of the municipal bond curve. Uh, but based on that forecast, we see a, a, a sort of tough sledding uh, for the for the muni space, and uh, you know, in a vacuum, if I were to say, you know, gradually we're expected to see like a fifteen basis point increase over the next three months, and then another fifteen basis points thereafter that in longer dated munis, we wouldn't be so concerned, right? That's right about the point where longer dated carry and price performance sort of uh, uh, mitigate each other, right? Uh, so uh, our total return projections, as we'll get into later, are, are sort of near zero, uh, particularly around the intermediate portion of the curve, and then somewhat positive on the long end and better in the short end. But uh, I guess the uh, point of this is that uh, coming off a difficult first quarter, uh, in fact, uh, the most difficult for first quarter from a total return performance standpoint that we have on record, a negative 6.23% return uh, for the first quarter. You know, Again, worst performance since uh, we have records back to 1980. So, you know, pretty bad uh, outflows uh, for traditional mutual funds at about 23 billion. Uh, fortunately, inflows from ETFs at about the three three billion, right? Somewhat of a uh, of, of a respite uh, in in down markets. But um, when we talk about uh, market performance over the first quarter, I'll turn to Ye to give us a a, a more uh, well flushed out uh, recap. Ye, please. Uh, yes, thanks, Peter. So. Yeah, so as the first quarter passed, so in March last month, so the IG Muni index returned negative 3.2%, and the high yield Muni index returned negative 3.6%. Uh, this is the third consecutive negative month already this year. And uh, uh, for taxable Muni's, uh, taxable Muni sold off because of the longer duration. Uh, the March return was negative 5%. Uh, with a year-to-date uh, return of negative 8.3%. So uh, largely sold off. And as Peter mentioned already, the first quarter, that's the worst quarterly performance since 1981. And uh, looking from the curve performance, uh, basically across uh, both IG and high yield indices, the short duration outperform. So the pre-resector uh, uh, had a monthly return of negative 1.6%, while the longer duration, uh, like 20 year plus, uh, had a monthly return of negative 4.8%. And uh, uh, from a sector perspective, the housing sector actually, which has the longest duration, had a negative 4.2%. Not very encouraging numbers. Uh, yeah, yeah. Do, do better next quarter, please. And not dissimilar, right, to to what we've seen in some cases in, in hiking cycles. So, can you uh, talk a little bit about what we've seen in uh, when uh, in periods when the Fed has chosen to slow down the economy, and just preface it with when we see a very large sort of uh, you know aggressive campaigns where the Fed is uh, aggressively trying to eradicate inflation, the the performance has been a very mixed, uh, particularly on the long end of the market. And, um, you know, that is somewhat reflected in our uh, 
performance projections over the next three quarters. So uh, you yeah, talk about that. We we actually we had a one publication in January. We talked about the previous four Fed uh, tightening cycles. So basically, we, we find something interesting that, that the short end treasury, like a two years treasury yield, is already actually acting faster than Fed funds rate. Um, so a lot of information, like a Fed speak, already pricing. So the rates started moving much higher, just right, just way before the Fed starts to hike. So that's just like what happened right now. So that's why uh, the long end muni yield. Uh, during the previous tightening cycles, they behave differently. So we examined the past four cycles. So basically the, the first one was in 1994 and the second one was in 1999 and the, the third is in 2004 and the, the last is in 2015 to 2018. Mm. So during those four cycles, we, we found that uh, as I mentioned earlier, the, the Fed funds rate has a better correlation with the short end muni U. Uh, so basically for the two year, five year high grade muni, it can reflect about like 40 to 56% of the Fed funds rate. That's that if the Fed funds rate rates rise like a 100 bips, the two year, five year might rise 40 bips as well during the same period. Uh, but for the, during the same period, uh, same period, the 10-year and 30-year can only reflect the Fed funds rate about 20%. So that's that if it's the Fed funds rate rise 100 bips, the long end might Which only- we're expecting yeah, in the next- Exactly. Yeah. 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 So the long end only rise on average 20 to 25 bips. Mm -hmm. So we, we checked this. So within those four tightening cycles, we checked. So for the older two tightening cycles, uh, tightening cycles, which had a period of one year each. In the first tightening cycle, uh, the Fed funds rate rose about 300 bips. Which is this, similar to what we're looking at now. Yes. And that again was 1994. Yep, 1994. Right? Yeah, 1994. And uh, it took one year. Uh, it's similar like what we have right now, exactly. What we're expecting. Yeah, and uh, during those tightening cycles, the long end Muni index actually underperformed the main index uh, significantly. Dramatically. Yes, dramatically. Yes. And if we look at the most recent two tightening, tightening So that was both in 99 and 94. Yeah, the, the 2004 and the 2015. Yeah, those two, the, the 2004 uh, tightening, so the Fed funds rate rose from 1% to five, five and a quarter. Uh, it took two years, it's kind of mild. And the most recent one, the one starting in 2015, December to 2018, December, uh, the Fed funds rate rose 225 bips, but it took three years, uh, it's even milder. So in those two tightening cycles, the long end actually outperformed uh, because the long end yield only rose 20 bips. Get so, very gradual. Yeah, right? exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's more like, uh, the Fed start to hike, and uh, the long end is waiting for how the economy perform, right? Yeah. So the it's not exactly the long end will rise uh, uh, or decline. It's so which of those? So you have ninety four, ninety nine, where long end uh, got crushed, right? Yes, significantly under underperformed, right? 
and then the more recent tightening cycles were along that perform, which, um, and, and again, one being uh, the most re recent tightening cycle being extremely gradual. Uh, do, do you think we're more in this sort of uh, 1994, 1999 sort of aggressive Fed uh, relative to? Yeah, I think because of the high inflation situation yeah. right now, we yeah. probably will go pretty aggressive this time. We'll see, right? Uh, as mm -hmm. as we always do, like our, our views and, and naturally the market's views, the Fed views, of, we all evolve with, with the economy and what the data exposes at, at any given point in time. Um, so... Uh, looking at that, and you know, I'll, I'll also say that as we see the Fed uh, doing right, uh, and as we see Alex and, and his team doing with with the rate forecast, uh, there is always this sense of a more gradual sort of uh, increase in yields, or for that matter, uh, decrease in yields if, if the cycle dictates. And you know, we see these rate forecasts sort of evolving as opposed to. Uh, you know, this sort of revolution where, they, where they'll just sort of, you know, take rip the Band-Aid off and move rates to to where uh, the current data would imply. I would suggest that uh, if they did do that now, we would be suggesting far higher uh, rates in the longer portion of the market. Um, however, uh, you know, we'll see how GDP uh, should evolve as uh, or not uh, as we uh, progress through, particularly the early part of 2023, as there is a significant lag between what the Fed is doing and the reaction in, in, in the broader economy. With that said, though, I wanted to just briefly hit our projection for total return based on that rate forecast that uh, we discussed earlier. So we're expecting somewhere around 35 to 40 basis points of increase in 10 and 30-year uh, rates between now and year end. Now, that, again, right at, the effect, right at the inflection point between positive price performance and negative price performance. Given the current shape of the curve and areas of the curve that are uh, more or less sensitive to a rate movement uh, that produces a total return for, and it's important to sort of uh, recognize like uh, the type of assets that we're talking about in terms of total return projection. We're looking at a triple A current, uh, I'm sorry, investment grade, uh, current call structure. So uh, we won't have bonds getting pulled to the call, uh, call structure at least eight years, right? And 5% uh, coupon. So with that sort of generic structure, we're looking at a top IG return in about one to three years at a positive 1% or so, a one-year best return at a positive 1.2%, right? Uh, and in fact, positive returns out to right about the eight-year spot. So the eight-year spot, we see a positive return of about five basis points, right? Uh, the worst performing spot on the curve based on our current projections is right at that ten-year spot, but again, not uh, not egregiously uh, sort of sort of um, negative return. The return is about a negative twenty basis points, so only a negative twenty basis points. The curve starts to push a positive return again out in about twenty years and longer, and again, inflection point right. So uh, in the thirty-year spot, we're looking for a positive return of about fifteen basis points or so. Again, right at the right at the point where the carry starts to overwhelm the negative price performance. Now, five percent coupon. If we're talking about four percent coupons, uh, with the current volatility in Treasury yields, uh, anticipation is that at some point in time, uh, it's it is probable that those securities like longer dated double A fours and certainly single A fours out in the longer portion of the curve would extend to maturity for a time. Uh, the forecast is. 
sort of, um, you know, uh, sensitive, right, to, to shocks and yield in that by year end, the expectation is that we'll be in a very strong uh, you know, sort of technical environment, right, a usual sort of December, January, February market technicals in place where you see a lot of coupon income coming in, a lot of term, a lot of maturity structure coming in. Expectation is that the market will be relatively healthy at that point in time. Now, depending upon what's happening with U.S. Treasury market volatility and what's happening specifically with rates around year end, those securities could be, you know, in low premium sort of dollar price levels. But that doesn't mean that in October and November, when market technicals are more difficult and depending upon how volatile uh, shocks are to the upside, we couldn't be in a very difficult scenario from an outflow standpoint. So that would sort of dictate our call uh, for you know shorter uh, you know short call structure. So in our view, short call structure will continue to outperform as it has uh, thus far year to date. Expectation is though that if you're going to purchase longer dated fives with a short call, or rather you would prefer longer dated fives with a short call to longer dated fours with a short call. Why? Because at times that structure could get kind of dicey. Uh, in terms of the intermediate section of portion of the curve, so say, let's say inside of 15 years, short dated calls uh, in with 4% structure should be fine. But um, again, conservatively on the long end, we respect shorter dated, uh, short dated calls in 5% structure to be optimal. Uh, in addition to sort of our uh, continued predisposition towards shorter duration securities and short calls, we like FRN structure. Uh, we like the yield sector of the market clearly inside of five years due to amortization characteristics of those securities. Uh, we like uh, AMT airports, which um, Sabrina has been very patient uh, in waiting to, uh, uh, to uh, discuss. Um, and uh, AMT housing bonds as well. We've all seen uh, those uh, deals come out with uh, significantly high, uh, higher yields, higher spreads. Uh, there was a deal uh, in the market today that uh, was a triple B rated, uh, high triple B rated deal that spread about 150 basis points to 30 year treasuries, uh, AMT paper, uh, airport paper. So uh, very, uh, you know, very high yields for those securities. And we, we you know, project with that additional carry and given our call for rates that um, those structures should, should perform well as well. So um, talking about uh, the airport sector, um, you know, we've had discussions from uh, both our corporate bond strategists as well as our equity strategists at cover airlines mm -hmm. that uh, have been very bullish on the airline sectors, right? Uh, speaking of uh, record or, or rather uh, ahead of pace demand, uh, April, uh, both March and April, uh, receipts and air traffic at two of the largest air carriers in the U.S. was over 60 percent of what uh, similar sort of levels were in 2019. So, you know, uh, pre-pandemic uh, and generally is favorable outlook going forward. Uh, how do you feel about the airport sector from a uh, from a uh, more of a credit standpoint? Yeah, definitely. So we touched on this in one of our earlier publications, uh, January 10th, I think it was, but uh, the airport sector has uh, been, you know, very relatively stable, despite some of the pandemic pressures, demonstrated some solid fundamentals, um, liquidity and reserves have been one of the kind of key strengths of the major players in that sector. Um, they were bolstered by some really strong uh, 
federal support, particularly through the COVID relief packages. So about $20 billion um, to airports across the CARES Act, Supplemental Appropriations, and the ARP Act. Um, and so inclusive of that, we estimated when we wrote this up, you know, about tw 21 months on average uh, of liquidity among the top 20 airports. Uh, so having that kind of really solid liquidity backing them up provides that financial flexibility to kind of manage through some of the uncertainty around demand that we've seen over the past couple of years. Um, and, you know, we also look for airports that are supported by strong, uh, sizable economic um, service areas, those with hub status, high degree of connection, some diversity in carriers, so they're not relying on one single carrier for, you know, the majority of their flights. And that kind of supports that demand base and the, and the recovery in, in air travel demand as well. I would say um, kind of one of the major challenges we see facing that sector right now is the elevated uh, fuel prices, obviously impact airlines. Uh, historically, actually, it's been a positive thing for airlines as they're able then to raise fares, pass that on to, to customers um, and kind of recover the cost that way. But given the still sort of uncertain uh, demand picture, it's a little bit more difficult for them to pass on the fares that way. So that presents a bit of a challenge and potentially hitting uh, the cost sort of directly there. Um, but as you mentioned, and, and as we've kind of seen, demand is recovering pretty strongly, um, kind of stronger than we anticipated at this point. And so that positions airlines and, the, and then therefore airports to uh, kind of manage through these this kind of challenging cost environment that we're seeing. And, you know, sort of continue sort of the challenges, if you will, for uh, international travel, right? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, kind of expecting that international travel, business travel will kind of lag the broader uh, demand recovery picture where we'll see domestic travel and, and leisure travel recover a little more quickly. Right. Yes. Yeah, so a little bit slower to come back as yeah. as the, the uh, kind of return to work picture changes and, and we just see yeah, a higher demand for that kind of pent up demand for leisure travel being, you know, released a little more quickly. Got it. Uh, details in the publication, please uh, feel free uh, to uh, ha have a look and revert any questions back. So, uh, yay, uh, in, I've already stated you that AMT uh, was eliminated for corporate based investors, uh, significantly uh, mitigated for uh, individual investors out through 2025. I'm very surprised that AMT spreads uh, continue to be as wide as they are. Um, you know, that said, can you go over some of the other uh, sector uh, uh, results and analyses that we ran? Uh, we ran a sector analysis, sector spread analysis, yeah. both in the weekly and we, uh, we published the grid uh, in today's daily report. A couple of weeks ago, we did the same analysis, um, and the, at that time, the spread across sectors are uh, about one year high already. And uh, at, uh, in last week, uh, we note that uh, there are some uh, recovery uh, in terms of the spread, but despite that the yield continue moving higher. Mm, so we, we noticed that uh, in the conservative sectors, like a double A sectors, uh, on average, uh, right now, those sectors spread are about 86% uh of their one year uh range and uh, for the like lower quality sectors in, within the single a and the triple b uh the spreads are still about 91 percent of their one year uh, range and then looking from those 
spread by sectors, we actually we note that um, we we, I, we think that the, as you mentioned, the airport sectors are really compelling. Uh, the table here we didn't show the five-year range. Actually, uh, the spread right now is pretty close to the, to the five-year range, high upper bound, uh, which is the outflow cycle in 2016. So those spread look compelling uh, for both double A and single A airport sectors. And also we think the higher education, uh, the, the spread is also close to their five-year high as well. And uh, some utility sectors as, as shown here, like double A combined utility 20 year is, is actually at the 84 percentile of the 10 year range already. So yeah, we, we think uh, the spread recovered a little bit from the uh, sold off in the past few weeks, but uh, we, we still think some of the sectors as compelling. Mm -hmm. That is very interesting. Um, when you look at these sector spreads and, and you notice uh, those that, that are wider uh, than others, uh, it's important to look at, at supply as well. So uh, you see wider spreads on uh, New York uh, issuance, for example. Uh, there's just been a, you know, a deluge of supply thus far in the first quarter, uh, one, two. You see these AMT spreads, again, as we continue to mention, uh, as, as very, very wide. And uh, we've seen a significant amount of airport uh, issuance and housing issuance as well, relative to what we've seen historically. Um, so uh, in our view, these are technicals, not, not uh, credit features that are driving the market wider, uh, not to mention, uh, obviously, the, the lack of capital uh, in uh, mutual fund coffers given uh, the outflow cycle. Yeah. Um, Sorry, Peter, I just yeah. want to add a little more color on the AMT spread. So in our last week publication, we mentioned that the, the 20 year single A AMT air, airport spread is about 67 bips, and the, the uh, two-year average is actually only 45 bips, so it's like 20 bips wider. So these spread, yeah, as you mentioned, for corporate investors, they are literally free money, uh, free you pick up, right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So and for housing spread, it's even wider. So the single A AMT housing spread is more than 110 bips. And the, the two-year average was about 75 bips. So yeah, that's about like a 30, 40 bips wider than the two-year average right now. So, so um, by, by free money, uh, the references to the, uh, the fact that uh, AMT is no longer yeah, uh, an, an issue for corporate-based investors. Uh, however, you would look at that. So if you're a buy and hold investor, an asset liability manager, uh, you know, you uh, you're putting that asset away against longer term liability. You might look at that uh, as a cost of liquidity. Uh, you might look at that as uh, uh, in terms of the yes. addition, uh, the incremental spread. But in our view, it's not uh, it's not based on the credit fundamentals or or or, or a uh, degradation in credit fundamentals. It's simply uh, potentially for investors that uh, might need turnover, more rapid turnover in liquidity. You might. Um, uh, you might look at that as compensation for for such. Uh, in terms of uh, supply, I want to go over that uh, real quickly. Put a bow on the first quarter supply. So I'm going to turn to to Ye again. And uh, what we saw in terms of supply was consistent with our expectations at the beginning of the year. Uh, broadly speaking, uh, taxable supply uh, is uh, even lower than we expected. We expected taxable supply to be lower by uh, somewhere in the order of about 20 percent. 
uh, it's um, a, a bit lower than that uh, still, right? Uh, and that is based upon our uh, revised forecast for double A, longer dated taxable muni levels, uh, which uh, have gotten to the point where a lot of these taxable refunding deals, taxable refunding of tax exempt debt uh, have become more tenuous. So uh, with that, yeah, uh, you want to talk about some of the details in terms of uh, supply first quarter relative to? Yeah, sure. So in, in, uh, as you mentioned, Peter, so in the first quarter, the taxable uh, 1Q issuance was only 22 billion. So the, uh, the most of the lag was due to the significant lag in February. March taxable supply was actually fine. Uh, it was about 11 billion-ish, uh, which was actually 16% higher than last year, mm. but the February lagged significantly. Yeah. Uh, the first quarter, uh, so the total first quarter taxable insurance is 31% down over a year ago. And uh, as you mentioned already, uh, a lot of taxable advance refunding uh, was is muted right now. We note that there were only 31% of the March issuance was refunding. This number is the lowest since 2019, which uh, at that time, the taxable advance refunding just starting getting popular. So we, we think that the most reason for this is the higher taxable yield right now. So we plug in the most recent uh, trading levels for the taxable. Uh, we, we find that only the two years to call bond has some double digit savings. And uh, for the like longer years to call bond, it doesn't, it might not make more make sense for the issuers to consider taxable advance refundings. And what's more, if there's another 35th shift for the curve higher, uh, we won't see any double digit savings for, for the taxable advance refundings based on our, our model. Uh, and uh, regarding to the tax exam supply, uh, the first quarter was. 882 billion, which is slightly higher than last year, uh, 3% higher than last year. And this number is also 16% higher than uh, trading five-year average. So tax exam insurance is in good shape and the taxable, we think taxable supply will be uh, highly impacted by the higher rates. Yes. And this is very consistent with what we've seen post-TCJA. So beginning in 2018, it's been relatively um, you know, not good thus far. It, it's been a relatively uh, simplistic to estimate tax exempt supply. It's come at a relative steady state. Um, this is right on target for uh, what we forecast. Taxable supply, however, uh, given the impact of volatility and longer dated taxable yields, has become um, more difficult uh, to forecast. Now, um, Sabrina, I, I want to turn to you. We we had a we had we've had um, ab about ten publications thus far over the first quarter. We wanted to highlight several of the more credit-related portions of those write-ups without going through each. Now, uh, and as time would permit, uh, I'm going to skip a couple of section sections that we did want to highlight. One of them was with respect to the performance of the municipal bond market from a default and ratings transition standpoint in recessions. Um, we're not going to hit that now, but um, folks, we'd uh, encourage you to go into uh, the website and please have a look through and, and revert questions back. Um, one that I would like to address, though, Sabrina, with, with you now, uh, is uh, you know turning to inflation more broadly uh, and uh, the impacts of inflation on muni credit 
for both state and local governments, uh, as well as we've seen, you know, inflation at uh, for fuel cost and how that's impacted transportation sector. But let's first hit the uh, impact of inflation on state and local revenues. Sure. Yes. Yeah, so kind of looking at that a little more broadly, we, we updated um, the 4Q21 state and local government tax collections. We saw continued strong growth coming in. Um, total tax receipts in 4Q21 up 13% over the fourth quarter of 2020. Um, and increases in all of uh, the major uh, revenue streams, corporate and personal income, sales tax, property tax, uh, all showing growth over the prior year. So really good news. Right. Really good news. And continuing to see that, you know, evolving strong uh, revenue picture. And so given that and given mounting inflation in recent months, uh, we wanted to kind of evaluate the relationship between inflation and, and tax collections. Um, as you might expect, higher inflation, higher prices higher tax collections is kind of the logic there. Um, and so we looked at that pattern of how uh, trailing 12-month tax collections have changed year over year compared to year over year changes in, in CPI for inflation um, and found a correlation uh, correlation coefficient of 58% over the uh, 1992 to 2021 period. So, you know, pretty solid, not crazy high by any means, but you know, kind of indicating that that positive relationship growth in one begets growth in another. Um, but we kind of looking at it visually and tracking the pattern of growth between between those variables, you can really see the periods where, especially when there's kind of more extreme changes, they they really t- tend to track together, um, and particularly in those in those more extreme periods. And so when we kind of isolated those periods, for example, kind of a four-year period from the end of 2017 through the end of 2021, including those COVID-related kind of major fluctuations, um, that correlation coefficient jumped to 90%. And obviously noting that that sample size is much smaller, so a little bit harder to extrapolate that out. But um, that that tie between the, the of the relationship between inflation and, and tax collections, you know, clearly evident there. And how about, uh, you know, I'll segue right into the analysis or comparison, muni transition, uh, muni rating transitions, muni's default uh, characteristics, right, mm-hmm. relative to corporate bonds yeah. in, in recessionary periods, right? Yeah. Um, how, um, you know, naturally based upon uh, the jumping off point that we're in right now. Mm-hmm. So uh, we have rainy day funds, uh, state balances at record levels. The aforementioned revenue position right mm-hmm. coming into this year, you think we'd uh, do fairly well going right. on a go forward basis. Tell me about how we've done historically. Right. So looking back at prior recessionary periods, economic downturns, I think naturally, even in the you know muni space, you see a more elevated incidence of, of defaults, but significantly lower than you'd see mm-hmm. um, in the corporate space. Um, and we also found that kind of dialing in by sector that the defaults tend to be isolated to smaller muni subsectors, those that aren't relying on that broader, you know, state local government credit, broader tax base or, or revenue base. Um, you know, for example, in, in 2003, coming off of the early 2000s recession and leading into the Great Recession, um, about three quarters of, of muni defaults, at least in, in, Moody, in Moody's rated universe, mm. came from housing projects, but not, you know, state agencies, but uh, kind of smaller standalone rental projects. So 
those more exposed to weaker economy, they're seeing weaker occupancy and, and rental collections. Um, so kind of isolated to, to sectors like that rather than in you know, your, your state and local governments. Um, but yeah, certainly less severe than you see in, in the corporate space. If you look at the latest 2020 um, defaults and rating stringency and surveys from the, the rating agencies, the average default rate of munis was 0.2% compared to 8.6% in global corporates. Um, and then in terms of negative rating actions, I think more common than defaults, certainly, and, and you see an elevated pace of default uh, of rather of, of negative rating actions and downgrades. Um, but again, less severe than you'd see in the corporate space. So if you look at ratings drift and basically how many kind of average notches of downgrade you you see in a space um, in the Great Recession, for example, uh, the average ratings drift in the municipal space was negative 8.3 notches per 100 credits, which is how they measure it. Um, and then in the corporate space, it was negative 67 notches per 100 credits. So kind of orders of magnitude greater um, in the corporate space. So even though you in a recessionary period, you may see some pickup in those negative rating actions, it tends to be far more muted. Excellent. Uh, now, uh, finally, uh, superintendent, quickly, uh, sure. time allotted. Uh, this week, we wrote about the uh, impact of, or, or at least, uh, legislative initiatives, mm -hmm. both at a federal level and a state state level, to mitigate the impact of rising gasoline prices, rising rising fuel costs yep. uh, on the on the constituents. So. Um, our view, is, uh, as is uh, fairly uh, plainly uh, laid out in the publication, is uh, you know, there, are, there are a lot of uh, sort of uh, competing interests and, uh, and, and a lot of uh, competing views, mm -hmm. uh, such as the view of, of that the federal legislation, the probability of the federal legislation passing uh, appears to be uh, relatively limited. But uh, tell us about some of the state initiatives that have passed and uh, obviously, the expectation is that uh, those are, are far more likely uh, to continue. Yeah. yeah. So, in addition to that, you know, federal gas tax holiday legislation being proposed, a lot of states have proposed their own uh, state gas tax holidays or other relief measures like rebates and, and things of that nature. Um, so far, only three states have actually enacted uh, legislation for for a gas tax holiday. So, Connecticut, Georgia, and Maryland. Uh, have all enacted temporary state gas tax holidays ranging from, you know, about one to two months. Um, a lot of other states, about, I think, 20-ish in total, have proposed, they're in some, you know, some stage of proposal of their own. It's difficult to say what will pass and what will not, but we do, as you mentioned, think it's more likely that, you know, additional state measures will get passed than some federal legislation. Uh, I would also say that while motor fuel taxes represent, you know, a pretty small share of state tax collections on average, about four and a half percent last year, uh, those tend to be the funds that states put towards infrastructure funding for transportation um, and towards the state share of federal of, of infrastructure funding. So they get some portion from the state, um, but typically they have to match some portion of that with state funding and states tend to rely on their motor fuel taxes for that. So if there's you know, additional uh, state gas tax holidays or or longer term holidays and states maybe aren't accounting for how they're going to, you know, backfill that gap, then that has the potential to uh, impact 
their transportation, you know, infrastructure funding and, and capital programs. Sure. And in the federal legislation, there actually was provisions to yes. that bill. Right. It, it, the federal legislation has language which requires general fund transfers to, to yep. replace that reduced revenue on top of the fact that there was that influx of funding through the bipartisan infrastructure bill. So you don't really see a lot of, I, I don't think those are, each other out, right? Right. Yeah. They, they've got to backfill it and, uh, you know, the funding will be there, but it's a state-by-state basis as they pass these things, how they choose to fill that gap. So uh, clearly a risk, right? Certainly. Um, and um, the risk is more apparent on a state level in that there is no, uh, there isn't a uniform set of provisions to, to, to backfill uh, right. revenues. And, um, you know, while it's four and a half percent of um, general tax revenue, uh, there is a large uh, sort of standard deviation right. in that distribution by state. Yeah, but strong, uh, strong reserves, a lot of states yeah. calling on their, you know, budget surpluses that, that we've, we've discussed previously and kind of pointing to that as how they're going to cover uh, you know, the relief under these measures. So yeah. there's a, there are yeah, options there, but, right. and, you know, it, it's uh-huh. certainly a risk. Excellent. Uh, and uh, we, we risk trying your patience in this fall <laughs> any longer. Uh, we're uh, a, a, a minute over time. Great. Uh, well, hey, thank you again for joining us uh, for the call. Uh, we're, uh, we're available to, to answer any questions, you know, email, phone call. Uh, we're around and, uh, you know, please reference our publications uh, on the website. Thank you very much. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Please read J.P. Morgan Research Reports related to its contents for more information, including important disclosures. Copyright 2022, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. All rights reserved.